Discussing world-changing ideas through real conversations. Exploring the potential of technology to solve the most critical challenges facing business, people and the planet. Coming up... Power utilities have communication grids that are the size of, of actual carriers and what we consider a wireless carrier. And so in a lot of ways, that becomes the third grid that's necessary, is considered mission critical. So you need to look at reliability, you need to look at power reliability, and basically, you know, five, nine's reliability for the mission critical applications that run on it. This is the Real Conversations podcast by Nokia. Here is Michael Hainsworth. When we think of the electrical grid, we often think of the power lines extending out from a generating station or the wires that line our streets. But there is a third grid in modern electricity infrastructure, communications. It's always been there, but as the Venture General Manager for Energy Orchestration at Nokia, Liana Jo Alt believes it's becoming increasingly important during this fourth industrial revolution. We need visibility on demand to lower costs and our carbon footprint especially for microgrids. Alt's background is in where telecom meets the power plug. Earlier in my career, I actually um, worked in a uh, wireline service provider and had the opportunity to move to a power utility. And that's where I completely fell in love with the industry. I really felt like we were doing something really important to society, keeping people safe, keeping people warm and keeping the lights on. And so I've never looked back since then. So you came into the energy sector a little later in life. I did. I did, actually. I was um, probably about mid-career when that happened, and I had been working in telecommunications and networking for a long time, typically around some innovative role. And then, um, yeah, we just, just really had the opportunity to, to flip over and, and lift it and really saw a need, number one, for communications in that space and innovation. And of course, with the renewable uh, transition, it's really been a, a, alive with innovation and opportunity. Let's talk about renewables, because the energy crisis is certainly on everybody's mind now. And it seems clear that even if this was resolved tomorrow, if we could snap our fingers, we need to rethink our energy policy and consider more green and renewable energy sources regardless. In what way do we need to rethink energy policy? So I think if you look at what we have today, our our policies and our markets have really been built around this idea, this very traditional idea of centralized generation and then transmission and distribution to the end consumer. And with renewables and the way the intermittency works with generation, and it really lends itself more to a distributed energy system. And so more policies around local generation, more abilities for prosumers and nanocrits to be part of that picture and enabling private investment, I think really would help the entire energy transition to renewable. And I can imagine we can sort of take a page from the playbook that we're seeing in Europe at, at this time. You know, we're seeing more distributed assets instead of investing in these long transmission lines that are expensive and ultimately damage the environment. Absolutely. If you look at several of the countries here in the European Union, including the UK, where I am, um, energy communities is actually a, a regulated entity or regulatory construct where it allows for communities to look at balancing their assets, including microgrids and prosumer nanogrids, and being able to operate in this energy community rather than looking necessarily at these at these supply contracts coming from across you know the nation or or from the the North Sea. So it really does lend itself to a new way of operation and a new way of investment. You've told me in the past that we can't separate digital from green. Let's talk about what you meant by that. 
we've coined the term smart grid probably a little over a decade ago. And part of that was really around putting intelligence and communication further out into the grid. We've always had some sort of automation, not always, but we've had automation for a long time in the grid, just from a different perspective. But now as we look at the number of assets that we need to understand, that we need to monitor, that we need to control, when you start thinking about vehicle to grid, that's millions and tens of millions of now assets, storage assets that could be monitored and controlled that need to have some sort of um, understanding and intelligence behind them to make sure that the system stays reliable. So you really can't separate that digital. And now what we're seeing is the advent of edge compute. So now it's not only do we have digital, it's helping run the grid and automate the grid and monitoring millions of devices out there. Now we're looking at reliability and resiliency being built in through edge compute. Again, another layer of that digital picture. And it's all underpinned with communications. Some form of communications is always present on these assets to to move information from one site to another. When we talk about edge computing, it surprises me because usually we would associate edge computing needs tied to such things as artificial intelligence of visual recognition systems or, you know, augmented reality, these types of technologies that require an immediate response, yet a power grid needs this too. Absolutely, they do. So essentially, um, historically, there's enough inertia in the system for a few seconds of 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 balance, of, of time to balance the grid, especially when you're looking at like frequency balancing. However, when you start looking at, again, the number of assets behind the meter and what they're doing in these feed-in tariffs where you can actually sell it, sell your excess capacity back to the grid, now every time that's happening, there's, there's something that needs, a decision that needs to be made essentially. And to, especially to keep the reliability and the quality of the power that's on the grid, where it should be. And so if you start looking at how that needs to work automated in an automated fashion, artificial intelligence can help with that as well as machine learning. You can take historical trends, you can take the weather the weather data, you can take the market pricing, start combining that to make a much clearer picture and a profile for each one of these users. And you know, not everybody's the same. My grandmother, when I was growing up, had a had a an oxygen condenser that needed to run because of a the condition that she had. And so she has a different profile of need than maybe someone who is in their 20s, healthy, and is never home and is always out. So there's different needs for different consumers. And businesses are the same way. Not every business has the same profile when it comes to consumption. And so enabling this ability to react to the grid in a way or react to disturbances or changes in not only the consumption but generation in the grid is something that's really needs to be automated the, the longer we go with the more distributed generation that we have. You mentioned the communications component being uh, a key component to all of this, and communications has really been described as the third grid. What does the third grid mean to you? So this third grid, when we talk about a traditional power utility, or a traditional grid, again, as I mentioned earlier, you've got the transmission grid, which typically is transporting large amounts of of electricity or power, then you have, it steps down to the distribution grid. And the distribution grid is much broader, much wider and further reaching as it steps down to deliver that electricity or power to the individual consumers. But all of that is underpinned again by the need for communication at all your substations, your transformers now have a lot of communication and even the field area network. So again, this becomes the size 
a lot of these power utilities have communication grids that are the size of of actual carriers and what we consider a wireless carrier. And so in a lot of ways, that becomes the third grid that's necessary, is considered mission critical. So you need to look at reliability, you need to look at power reliability, and basically, you know, five, nine reliability for the mission critical applications that run on it. And so when we talk about microgrids, Um, coming together to uh, improve uh, sustainability as well as reliability of a grid for any given community that would need one. The need for communications, I can imagine, is just that much greater because it's just that much smarter of a grid. Yes. And I think, again, as a distributed asset, so there's typically multiple layers in a microgrid of communication. You'll have a local communication. A lot of times it's fiber because you want to connect each of those assets, those elements. So a microgrid is typically multiple disparate assets, distribution assets or generation assets that are connected together and operating as one asset. And so there's a need to have local communication that's ultra fast, that can make decisions about, do I do I use my wind? Do I use my solar? Do I need to flip my flywheel? And how that coordinates be- between each of those elements in order to maintain, again, the reliability of the grid and the frequency of that element of the grid, um, that area. So there's this level, which is that primary, what I call the primary communication method for the microgrid. And that's also going to need to connect to the traditional grid. Then you have the secondary level where it can be a wireless connectivity. Oftentimes it's bringing in information, maybe about local consumption. Maybe it's bringing in information about the weather and the market pricing so it knows how to behave or create that behavior profile on that then feeds down to the primary level of communication to help the assets know how to behave properly. You also can use the, um, that level of, of communication for SCADA. So when you need to basically look at monitoring and performance for whoever's operating that microgrid and maintaining the health of those assets, they need to have some sort of a connection to understand what the the assets are actually doing and then monitoring those from a distance typically. So a lot of times that wireless is used for that type of communication as well. And that brings us back to the idea that wireless communication technologies such as 5G would be at a certain level for feeding in artificial intelligence-based systems that would ultimately help predict the needs and the demands of any given microgrid community. Yeah, absolutely it could. So especially when you look at some of the advances with 5G with the ultra low latency components and the and the security behind that 5G offers that's a little bit more advanced than LTE, 5G becomes a definite um a definite game changer enabler for this type of a distributed um asset system. Tell me more about the role that artificial intelligence plays in a, a smart grid because no one wants to build a grid today without it being smart and you can't make it smart unless it's predictive. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of AI is really being developed specifically around energy profiles and energy use cases, I would say. So when you start looking at how do you predict the forecast and forecast for what your prediction is going to be so you know how much you need to be able to hedge from a, from a financial perspective, or how do you look at um, trading in between two houses, the AI that's built into the system again, through the edge compute really does help to make some of those decisions and enable things that we wouldn't necessarily look for or we didn't experience in the past, just like I mentioned earlier, vehicle to grid. 
when you start looking at the number of storage assets and, and cars are often are parked and sitting there for 80% of the time. So now being able to make very intelligent decisions about how to use the solar that you have on your roof, whether to charge your EV, whether to heat your, your water and your water heater, or whether to store it in a battery or to feed it back to the grid. AI is helping make all those decisions and the logic that's behind that can really enable a better utilization of the of the renewable energy that's there in the system. And I can imagine that complexity just advances dramatically when we realize that microgrids aren't just for communities, they're also for industrial complexes and other types of campuses. Absolutely. So you start looking at nested microgrid scenarios where you have multiple industrial complexes that because of reliability issues or because of renewability and sustainability, they want some sort of a green microgrid on their location and helps them you know, to again, maintain their flexibility and their balance and lower their cost. But then when you start looking at multiple microgrids tied with potential nanogrids in the same area, now you start looking at potential congestion as they all are trying to feed into the, to the grid or they're trying to balance on their own. And what does that mean? It's also, again, when you have multiple renewable assets, how do you most optimally use those assets is typically going to be defined by some sort of AI profile. So let's step back and, and talk about some of the complexities of a distributed architecture for power generation. What are some of these complexities that we must address? So I think there's a lot of complexities on different levels. When you think about from a regulatory standpoint, we'll start with policy. Is who's investing? Who gets the benefit from that? How is that treated? And what type of capabilities do we have to optimize the, us- the usage of that generation rather than just shedding it? Um, I think that when we start looking at business models with peer-to-peer trading and things, it'll get really interesting. I think the second one is how do you protect the data and how do you share that data? Here in Europe, of course, we have the GDPR policies and, and regulation that really prevents certain types of information being shared. And now as you look at these distributed assets, you may have multiple layers of people that need to understand what's happening behind the meter, what's happening at the edge what's happening in the neighborhood, what's happening in the industrial complex. And so now you have multiple streams of data that need to be shared, but how we share that and how it's aggregated is really going to be um, another key aspect. Standardization is a huge issue right now. Um, there's not a lot of standards that are in place for microgrid operators and how they need to operate. And so who has the governance? Who's, who's responsible in these areas where maybe they crowdsource a microgrid? Now that governance needs to be in place as well. From an operational standpoint, again, we've mentioned as you start looking at more feed-in tariffs, more prosumers that are able to feed in or want to feed in to make money um, off their assets that they have invested in locally. Now it becomes a little bit more of an issue operationally as well as how do you solve those power quality issues that are going to arise? And I believe I read an article last week that in the US, 80% of the respondents to the survey, that was their number one concern was power quality issues as feed-in tariffs are allowed in other locations in the U.S. And so I think that there's operational challenge as well. Um, Another piece that we don't often think about is the idea that we're losing the industry overall, the power utility industry are losing people. They're not being able to replace their workers as quickly as they need to. And a lot of that's through attrition. Many of these engineers and linemen were from the boomer generation and as they've retired, there are fewer and fewer people that are going into that particular industry. And so recruiting young people and, and fresh fresh employees into that 
area is another big challenge that I think we're going to have to address. I think the energy transition and you know the idea of innovation and the renewable piece and, and being sustainable is going to help with a lot of that recruitment. I think it's now sexy to be in the power industry. And so I do think that they'll have fresh faces coming in and, and there's a lot of interest in that as well as a lot of new startups and new entrepreneurial uh, opportunities for these young people. Or for someone coming into it later in life. Exactly. Exactly. That's one of the things I love about being part of the venture incubator is really being able to give advantage of some of the innovation that we've had at Bell Labs to be able to, to look at how we apply that to the challenges that we have in the grid. After this podcast, learn more about this and other insightful topics by going to nokia.com slash thought leadership. There you'll find additional information linked to today's podcast. So you've mentioned six specific complex issues that need to be addressed, of which any single one of them could be an individual podcast conversation in and to itself. But when you talk about the policies, when you talk about protecting and sharing data, the financial issues, the standardization issues, the operational issues and staffing and recruiting, which of those six do you think isn't getting enough attention right now that needs to be addressed in greater detail? Wow, that's probably a tough question. Um, and yet an entire podcast conversation in and to itself there again. Exactly. Um, how, wow. So I think that, um, I think policy and the financial aspect are probably, if I could pick two and they're kind of tied together, it's how the markets are really and how we've, how we've built the markets. Um, it needs to be redesigned. And I think that policy is going to have to be allowed, you know, policy is going to need to be in place to allow for that. I think the technology is there. I think there's a will and desire in society overall. Um, I think we're starting to see that, especially in the U.S. Now that the FERC Directive 2222 was enacted and enabled, we're starting to see a lot of private investment in this space. So I think that probably the regulatory or the policy piece is lagging behind there to allow us to more readily take advantage of the private investment in the system. At the, and I'm not talking about private investment from a large utility or from a, a mega oil and gas giant. I'm talking about that private investor from the prosumer that wants to go green and that wants to make a difference and reduce their carbon footprint and how they can be enabled. Let's bring it back to the community because one of the most interesting things to me about a microgrid is that a local community could get together, deploy a microgrid. They would get reliable energy. They would get local energy. It would, I would assume, be more affordable as well. But how easy is it for a community to achieve a microgrid? I wish it was easier than it really is, if I'm honest. Um, there's a lot of layers to that as well. I think that when you have a champion, it's really important for them to have two, two things in mind. Number one, a champion for the project. Typically, that's coming from a local counselor or a local governmental agency that's willing to help cut through red tape to accomplish that. Otherwise, you, you can get into a real, um, you can go down a real rabbit hole. I think the second thing that they really is necessary is who is that key tenant, that anchor tenant that's going to take the bulk of what's what's being produced. And oftentimes that's either some kind of a commercial or an industrial. So as you size that properly and as you look at installing that, most developers are going to want to know that that energy is going to be consumed and by whom. And so I think those are two real elements that anybody that's interested in doing this or spearheading that project need to have in place. 
That's fascinating to me, the idea that you would need an anchor tenant, much like the way a shopping mall requires an anchor tenant to draw in foot traffic to the other stores. Uh, wouldn't that be putting a lot of eggs in one basket? Say that industry moves away, they, they offshore or they, they, they change their, their location. Wouldn't a, a broader spread of homes be a, a, a more realistic and, and reasonable expectation that there's always going to be housing there? But there may not be, uh, you know, Fred Stormdoor company that needs to run aluminum plant operations. Yes, I would absolutely say that there probably is. I know that um, that there is that broader the broader picture of multiple homes makes a lot of sense. You'd really have to size it properly, and you'd have to really look at now the power utility helping a great deal with the from the grid perspective. I mean, they're going to be involved anyway. The grid operator is always going to be involved. Um, but I think that the reliability of knowing that the profile for this off taker, so to speak, this industrial company, what that profile is going to be a much less peaky when you think about, you know, here in the right. UK, we always talk about, you know, it's, it's the football matches in halftime because everyone turns on their tea kettle and you see a <laughs> spike and seriously, you see a spike in consumption. Right. And so it's, it's really unpredictable. And I think that it's that predict predicticality or however you want to say predictability of that off taker that the renewable developer is looking for. And it usually is a return on investment of probably 15 to 20 years of what they're looking for. So as long as, you know, your, your industry is going to be there for 15 to 20 years, we hope so hmm. that that really helps um, spearhead the project because the renewable developer knows they'll get a return on an investment. I think too, if you look, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the technologies are really changing. There's so much happening and micro wind turbines. I've even seen wind turbines that fit of they're, they're horizontal that fit on the ridge pole of a house. They're quieter. They are quieter, but I don't know how efficient they are. I haven't really checked into that. Mm. But typically, you know, you see microgrids with wind on the edge of a of a community, or they may not have wind in them at all. They may have some kind of a combined heat and power kind of location, or a, they may be part of. A lot of times right now they're gas turbines. So they're they're gas turbines that are spinning when there's no there's no solar or there's no you know not storage. And so that's one of the challenges I think with we need more renewable components that are in the microgrid. But along with that, I think that um, you know, there are new technologies that are coming along that will help number one, make the microgrids more renewable. And number two, probably create more variety in the type of generation assets that are viable for a microgrid. What about the storage component to this conversation? To your point about all the kettles going on at once, you're going to want to have a certain base load, but you're also going to be, want to be able to feed in as necessary when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. Absolutely. So I think lithium-ion batteries are kind of the the standard right now for storage, but we're seeing other types of storage, especially around thermal. I've seen um, iron core where it's literally molten iron, which I'm not sure of the safety of that in my own backyard or the you know, the practicality of it. But I've also seen there's a company, the Nordics, that's developing and using sand as thermal storage. It's much cheaper. Um, it's a really interesting company. It's a startup there that's been doing some things on that, on thermal storage this way. I think that really... When you think about heat pumps and you think about water heaters, there is some storage or flexibility inherent in most homes today. 
Um, but yeah, I think by far lithium ion batteries are still going to be the standard for a while. And again, everybody has batteries in their electric vehicles. And so I think that whole idea of vehicle to grid is going to become a much hotter topic over the next few years. And there's a couple of car companies that are actually developing or have developed bi-directional batteries specifically for storage at, um, at the home, at the residential level. That's just fascinating to me. Again, tying back into artificial intelligence, recognizing, well, um, Michael isn't going to be driving his car for the next six hours uh, and we have a need for electricity right now. So let's sap his battery a little bit and charge it later on so that it's still available when he needs it. Yeah. And then you have the other layer of let's charge it. What? Who, who is Sally and, and Tom, the next door neighbors? When are they charging their vehicles? And so the grid operator is still going to be able to balance by understanding what's happening and scheduling those assets. So you're shifting that, that load basically to say, okay, you're going to schedule, you're going to schedule to charge at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. You have an hour for the charging that'll get you to, to work and back, but you don't overcharge. You don't have, it's, it's only what you need necessarily. And so you're looking at smaller cycles, perhaps on your batteries. And I think that, um, yeah, you look at that overall intelligence. Now you have a controller in your home. I mean, could you imagine if you think, Michael, about the number of devices that you have plugged in, the number of light, light switches, the number of sockets, and the number of things that may be taking just a small amount of energy all the time. And can you imagine trying to, trying to actually create a behavior profile for every one of those devices? Now they've got intelligent controllers in the home that you can say, this is my profile, this is how I would run. And now you can meet, match that with your neighborhood and understand what's happening. So maybe if you're not using your car battery, maybe I can use some of the energy because I'm a little bit short this, this short tonight for some reason. Um, I think there's just so much that a possibility that could potentially come to come to fruition, I guess, um, when you start talking about artificial intelligence and all the connectivity in place. So for the listener, when it comes to how to network a microgrid, if there was one key takeaway for you, what would you want that listener to walk away with? I think to have a plan. I think that it's it's not something you just go and decide one day to do, that you need to be patient, that it's going to take some time in order for that plan to come together. And, you know, I think we've developed a, a really good asset to refer back to some of the, the, the things that I've been doing with, with within Nokia lately, we've had a pretty good asset to help people through that thought process. They really need to have a plan and they need to start with buy-in from people. Building a future that's productive, sustainable, and inclusive in a world that acts together. Discover how by visiting nokia.com slash thought-leadership.